So good to be with you. If we haven't met before, my name is um, Phil Adams. Uh, my wife and I, we uh, live over on Lunton Ridge beside Liesl and uh, Brett Ratcliffe. And uh, we've been in the neighborhood for four years. We serve as a pastor um, here in the Rogers Park Network. Most of you, I'm looking out and you um, know me, which is great. So serve down at Subka Sahara just on Devon Avenue with Shine Gidla. Have the privilege of being here uh, to open God's word with you this morning. Um, if you've been around Park, for a while, you know that the way we, we teach is we take books of the Bible and we walk through, step by step, through those books of the Bible. We, we believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that God's Word is the primary way that God leads and guides uh, His people and the primary way that we encounter God in our lives. And so we recently started a new series. I think it's up on the screen, First Corinthians. Uh, we're working through this book of the New Testament where the Apostle Paul, he has written under divine inspiration a letter to a church in the city of Corinth, which you can find today in modern-day Greece. And over the past couple of weeks, we've just started this. Jimmy, Jason have been giving us kind of some of the, the background to the context in this city of Corinth. It was a city of culture and influence and wealth. Paul had been there and made disciples, made followers of Jesus in this city. He'd seen a local church formed, and then he had left, and he had went on to plant more churches, make more disciples of Christ. And then after hearing some news about the state of the church in the city of Corinth, Paul, the, the missionary, the church planter, the uh, apostolic leader that he was, he, he writes to them, he writes back to them, to speak into the, some of the issues within the church that had arisen in the church since he left. Since Paul left this church, it had been pushed and it had been pulled by the air that they breathed around them, by the cultural norms in which the society they lived, living in the city of Corinth with all of its influences, as you can imagine, living here in Chicago was having a formational effect on their lives. And so Paul writes this letter of 1 Corinthians, not telling them to leave, not telling them to go find a farm or to buy a vineyard with a nice wine cellar or form a monastery secluded away from the world. No, Paul writes to tell them how to stay and how to live and how to be the church. And what we're going to see today is he writes to tell them how to think. He writes to tell them how to think, how to be in their right mind, how to think rightly. And ultimately, how to ensure that it is Jesus who is preeminent, that it is Jesus, not culture or people or personalities, who is to be the primary influence on their lives and on their formation as human beings. And so the task for us as the church here in Rogers Park is not only to ensure that Jesus is forming us as individuals, that Jesus, but that Jesus is forming us as the church here in this place, in this city, in this neighborhood, and how we embody ourselves in this neighborhood is not based around tradition, it's not based around a model of church, rather we should always be centering and re-centering ourselves on the will and the ways and the rhythms of Jesus. Amen? The term iconoclast, it refers to someone who breaks up or even destroys established beliefs. Iconoclast, it refers to someone who breaks up or even destroys established beliefs. Iconoclasts are those that pave unforeseen ways of thinking. Examples throughout history of iconoclasts are Martin Luther King, who articulated a new vision for race relations in America, Darwin speaking the speaking or sparked the theory of evolution. 
Galileo was killed for claiming that the earth was not the center of the physical universe. Prince, the pop star, the rock star, was an iconoclast in fashion and sexuality as someone who broke up established norms. And why is this all relevant? This is relevant for this passage today because Paul, in the first chapters of 1 Corinthians, Corinthians, he presents Jesus as an iconoclast, not in the realm of fashion or science. Rather, Jesus is an iconoclast who consistently throughout history and still today reshatters the very movement of faith he started, only to recenter it on himself. When an artist called Hans Holbein revealed a painting in the 16th century called The Body of the Death of Christ, which I think you can see. It had this kind of iconoclastic effect. The Russian author Dostoevsky writes in reference to this painting, a man's faith might be ruined by looking at this picture. And the reason being, even those of us who maybe pride ourselves in acknowledging the centrality of the crucifixion in our faith probably can't help slightly flinching at the reality of Jesus, seeing Jesus beaten and crucified and dead as captured in this painting. There's many people have gone and seen this painting. It's in Italy and they go to it and they're struck by the fact that Jesus died. There is something about the eyes still half open, the expressionless face, the ribs and the bones, the emptiness, the imminent decomposition. There is something about the vulnerability and the nakedness of Jesus paired with his claim to be the savior of the world, the king of kings, and the only hope for our lives that when looking at this painting seems irreconcilable. There is something about this painting that makes Jesus' part of save us feel easily refutable like the criminal crucified beside Jesus. We may echo his question, can't you even save yourself? that Jesus could be the image of the invisible God and also give himself up and lay himself down like this on one hand seems like foolishness, as in that which does not make any sense. And on the other hand, the question in our passage today, it begs of us to answer the question, do we have the mind of the man in the painting? Do we see what he sees? Do we think what he thinks? Because if we do, and we are attuned to the mind of Christ, we won't see foolishness in this painting, but the inbreaking wisdom of God. Let's pray before we read our passage. God, we come before you today, God, as your people, God, recognizing our need of your voice in our lives. God, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you, God, that you uh, reveal yourself, your will and your ways, God, that you uh, give us commands to follow you, God, to, to, to know you, who you are, God. So I pray that again, God, through your words in this passage in 1 Corinthians, that you'll reveal yourself more and more to us. Our affections will be stirred for you, God, and we will continue to give our lives to you, God, and you will continue to shape us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray in your name. Amen. If you've got a Bible there with you, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Last week we were in chapter uh, the first part of chapter 2, now we're going to read from chapter 2, verses 6, down to verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. And it reads like this. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory, for our glory 
None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Just prior to our passage this morning and the, the, the verses before of the Apostle Paul has responding, been responding to the church in Corinth and how they have become enamored with the culture in the city in which they live where there is a hierarchy that is built around wealth and power and ability and eloquence and giftedness and elitism, which is being affirmed as wise, as, as a, an effective way to order society. In the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, the writer mourns or he grieves with these words. He writes, what has been, what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new? And it would be nice to look at Corinth and then to look at the world around us 2,000 years later and say there is a new wisdom that has been birthed in the world, that there is no longer a social hierarchy built around wealth and power and ability and elitism, and yet still the innocent still face injustice. Those in poverty are soonest to suffer. The kings continue to take what is not theirs. A simple way to think about wisdom is that which makes good sense. And so similar to beauty being in the high eye of the beholder, wisdom too is in the eye of the beholder. And the church in Corinth, they were looking out at this ordering of society around them, beholding what they thought looked wise. And so they were thinking it makes good sense that we elevate the importance of uh, the, uh, the good sense that we elevate the importance of eloquency in communicating the gospel. That it makes good sense that we follow leaders who are educated and strong and fearless and competent. That it makes good sense to learn best practices for the church from Fortune 500 companies and the most successful CEOs. But Paul recognized what was at stake here. In the immediate verses prior to our passage, which Jason taught on last week, Paul, listened to this, he intentionally chooses to defy the wisdom of the world and chooses not to proclaim the gospel with lofty, eloquent speech. Rather, when he originally laid the foundation of the gospel in the city of Corinth, he intentionally made his weaknesses, his fear, and his trembling evident. So that the Corinthians' newfound faith or any gospel transformation in their lives or any effectiveness in Paul's ministry could not be tracked back to Paul, but rather he wanted to ensure that any encounter with God was clearly due to nothing other than the power of God at work in their lives, working through his weakness. 
He wanted to make sure that the tactics those in Corinth experienced when they were trying to buy a new car or the upbeat endorphin-inducing music in Targets to make Target to make us feel like shopping more. You guys know what I mean? Paul wanted to make those tactics of manipulation, make sure those tactics of manipulation that they did not infiltrate the church. RP, we live in a neighborhood where there is much skepticism that the church is simply an institution built around man-centered religious manipulation for human gain. We live in a neighborhood where the church, people view the church as simply an institution built around man-centered religious manipulation for human gain. There are many in our neighborhood who think there exists a, a sinister motivation behind the church. And so Paul very clearly demonstrates, very importantly for us in Rogers Park specifically, that how we navigate this skepticism is not through doubling down on our giftedness or our competencies or our professionalism with a can-do attitude. We are to be a safe place for weakness and frailty and humanity demonstrating that we are a community of people, not rock stars, not celebrities, not professional Christians, but a people made up of the weak and the fearful and the trembling, authentic people who love one another, battling sickness and sadness, loss, loneliness, confusion, doubt, who in humility together simply can't deny that we, in our own desperation, have had an encounter with the power of God that's changed us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 to 5, Paul wants to make sure that he does not impart a way of wisdom, a way of thinking about effective ministry that will affirm people's skepticism that to follow Jesus is to have been manipulated. But then in verse 6, we read there is another kind of wisdom that he does want to impart, that he does want them to feel and see. Verse 6 reads, Yet but... Among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Then verse 7, he says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So first we ask the question, who in verse 6 is Paul imparting this wisdom to? And his answer, the answer that Paul gives is those in the church who are mature. And what Paul is doing here, he's kind of saying something that's kind of tongue-in-cheek. He's causing people to lean in and ask the question, who's he talking about? Is he, is he talk, talking about uh, me? Does he think that I am mature? There's things all over the place today. Kelsey looks very concerned right now. She, she's already praying. <laughs> What he's not saying is this wisdom that he wants to impart is, is only available to those with some kind of special, special status within the church. Rather, the mature that he's referring to are going to be those that really listen, which is befitting because the wisdom Paul is talking about is hidden. Paul says it's a, it's a secret. It's a wisdom that is not blatant. Or we can say the wisdom Paul is referring to here, it, does not, it is not dominant in the culture that's around us. 
And maybe a more culturally irrelevant way to translate the term rulers of this age is in those who typify the wisdom of the dominant culture would be to say, say influencers, those with, with a platform within society, those that dominate our news feeds and those the world have deemed worthy of, of, of constant attention. But the only reason Paul is mentioning these rulers, these influencers, is to make it clear this this secret, this this hidden wisdom is not going to come from them. It won't come from the dominant gatekeepers of influence in our culture and the echo chambers that echo them, those who tell us what it means to look good, those setting the benchmark for what success through wealth and power looks like, those seeking to cancel all thought that is not their own. In fact, Paul offers two Warnings as a wake-up call to the church in Corinth. If you're following after the advice and the wisdom of the dominant gatekeepers of culture, number one, their wisdom is fleeting and it's going to pass away. Trends are trends. Fashion becomes old-fashioned. But number two, and this is the big one, in verse 8, Paul equates the same spirit found in the rulers of culture with the same spirit of rebellion found in those that crucified Christ. Paul is warning the church in Corinth, I know those who crucified Jesus are dead, Pilate and Caesar and the religious leaders, they have all passed away, but the same spirit of self-sufficiency and pride and love of money and obsession with power and divisiveness that motivated those who killed Jesus is still found in the hearts of those you are finding oh so admirable. We should be sympathetic. There are so many questions that life throws at us. We also want to learn and and, and grow as human beings. We want to be aspirational with our lives and look back and say that we lived well and we made good choices and we made good decisions and we followed the right path with our time and our finances and our passions and our careers. And so it's natural for all of us to be looking for signposts and books and podcasts and influencers directing us on how to live our lives and how to live well and how to think well. We want to be hopeful about our futures, and so we want to be influenced by those that speak hope into our parenting and our careers and our leadership. We want to listen to those that make us feel like our lives are not meaningless and we are moving towards something that's beautiful and good. And Paul taps into this aspirational heart condition that we all share in verse 9 with an oh-so-kind, kind reminder Remember church in Corinth, remember church in Rogers Park. The influence of this, influencers of this world may have a lot to say, but let me remind you, verse 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man even imagined, what God has prepared for those that love him. And maybe to make it even more explicit, we could read what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man even imagined what God has to give, to offer, to share, to speak into the lives of those who love him. And so we ask ourselves, are we listening? Or has the voice of God become impossible to differentiate from the other voices that we're listening to? 
Do we allow the God of the Bible to cut through and silence the influence of our Instagram feeds or our news feeds or our favorite authors or the echo chambers of family and friends? Are we listening? Church, I don't know what motivates those who influence you. Authors, podcasters, Fortune 500 CEOs, politicians, celebrity pastors, family members, but I do know at best if their motivations are pure and not self-serving, at best, if their wisdom is tried and tested, still, at best, what they are sharing is being filtered through their own sin and brokenness and finitude and the distance between you and them, whether that be time or space, means they cannot replace the imminent, immediate, intimate presence of voice and voice of God in your life. Verse 9 beckons us to never lose the wonder that God speaks. And he speaks to each of us. And so Paul spends the remainder of our our verses today explaining and fleshing out how God influences or speaks into our lives. And in verse 10, he states clearly God reveals himself to us through the Spirit. There's a, a means of revelation that occurs within the lives of Christ followers that occurs through the Spirit of God. Throughout the scriptures to explain this, we see it clearly stated that God is one. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But then also throughout scripture, we also see that God exists as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each of these persons are God, and each of these persons are one. They have eternally been three in person and eternally one in essence. And it is okay and befitting that describing a God beyond us would stretch our logic a little bit, but what's helpfully relevant in this passage is not how God exists as three in one, which we see revealed throughout Scripture. Rather, what Paul wants to point out today is how the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they play different roles in revealing to us who God is. In John chapter 16, Jesus is preparing his disciples for when he would return to be with his Father in heaven after the crucifixion. But he wants to encourage them, knowing they don't want him to leave, but he actually tells them it is better that he leaves because only then, with him gone, will the Holy Spirit be sent to indwell and live within them. Jesus says, this is his words in John 16 verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus said, for he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. And so for every follower of Christ, when you give your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is sent by Christ. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit begins to live and dwell and be present within you. We will get to this verse in a few weeks, but Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Think about that. And then in the next few verses, Paul explains this further. When Paul writes, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, in verse 10, he's saying that there is nothing about God, the mind of God, the ways of God, the plans of God, the heart of God, that the Holy Spirit does not know. The Spirit of God is intimately one with God. Then in verse 11, he fleshes this out further with a rhetorical question, for who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him, meaning that the Holy Spirit knows God just the same as God knows himself. 
So why does Paul want to emphasize this intimate oneness between God and the Holy Spirit? Verse 12 tells us, verse 12 says, Now we have received not the spirit of wisdom of the world, but we received the spirit that is from God, so that, so that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. What Paul is drawing out is that to be able to comprehend the wisdom of God, the depths of God, the ways of God, the truth of Scripture is not an ability that we have within ourselves. Rather, our very understanding is a gift from God. Verse 14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of God, for they are folly, foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so when, when we do receive the gift of understanding of the gospel, of who Jesus is, of God's words, it has only been possible through the Holy Spirit within us at work in our lives as a conduit between our minds and God's minds so that the ways of God can be perceived by us as wisdom. Which means, this is a crazy thought, but if Jesus never sent the Holy Spirit, if the Spirit of God was not active in our lives, guiding us to all truth, gifting us with understanding and comprehension, the life of Christ would, for each of us, be blindly meaningless. Christ's, teaching, Christ's teachings to us would carry no authority. The cross would be incomprehensible. A king giving himself up and laying himself down would be refutable myth. And his sufferings we would deem self-inflicted foolishness. Which brings us to the reason why Paul has chosen to respond to the Corinthians by reminding them of the role that the Holy Spirit plays in their lives. Why does he want to remind them and recenter them on the necessity of the Holy Spirit's influence on their lives? Because Paul knows very simply that there is no other influence that will consistently and continually reveal Jesus Christ and him crucified to be the wisdom of God. There is no other influence that will consistently and continually reveal Jesus Christ and him crucified to be their means of salvation. Paul knows their fascination with wisdom. How we too want to learn and grow as human beings and look back and say that, the, that we lived well, that we used our time and our finances and passions well. We want to say that we have been wise with our lives. And so it's natural for all of us to be looking signposts, books, podcasters, influence directing us on how to live our lives and how to live our lives well. And in verse 15, Paul refers to this kind of aspirational heart posture. Paul writes, the spiritual person judges all things. A clearer translation of this would be the spiritual person discerns all things. As in the spiritual person seeks wisdom and discerns what will be wise in all areas of their life. The spiritual person asks, what is wise schooling? What does wise parenting look like? What are wise financial decisions? What does wise dating look like? What are wise career moves? But then Paul makes this point of clarification. He says, but is himself judged by no one. And we ask, why does Paul make this point of clarification? That the spiritual person will discern wise 
choices due to the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, but then feel the need to point out as an encouragement to say, but remember, nobody without the Holy Spirit will be in a position to judge your decisions. Or, to put it another way, but remember, nobody without the Holy Spirit will be able to discern your decisions as wise. Why does Paul need to clarify this? Because Paul knows, and this is what binds this whole passage together, if he is successful in recentering those reading 1 Corinthians on the influence of the Holy Spirit, not only is the foolishness of the cross going to be revealed consistently and continually as the wisdom of God as a means of their salvation, but also Paul knows that when the cross is given centrality, the secret hidden wisdom of God will also be revealed to be the way of a new inbreaking kingdom. A kingdom where the way of the cross is a way of life to be lived. A life where the way of foolish, self-giving love is the way of the wise. In verse 16, we're almost done, done. Paul quotes from the Old Testament. He says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And this question is, is from the Old Testament. It was originally asked of God, for who is to understand the mind of God as to instruct him? When God did something incomprehensible, when God did something that people could not understand, the Jewish tradition was to make this declaration. Who is to understand the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And what is fascinating, though, in here, in our passage, this question is not being asked of God. And it isn't even being asked of Jesus as his body lies in that painting that we see in the beginning. Paul, in verse 16, sets the expectation not that this question of incomprehensible wonder is being asked of God or of Jesus, but of us and about us, about our lives. We can take that question and say, for who has understood the mind of Delhi? For who has understood the mind of Dave? Because Paul knows that when the Holy Spirit indwells us and serves as a conduit between our minds and God's mind, the effect is that we, the people of God, will have the mind of Christ. And we will think like him, and we will live like him, and we will follow our king. And for all our attempts at wisdom and following him, just like he was in this world, we too will be deemed fools. Which is the evidence sealed by the Holy Spirit that we are his. Church, there is a foolish way to raise your children that is wise. There is a way of foolish generosity that makes good sense in the kingdom. There is a way of weakness and frailty that is the power of God. There is a path of crucifixion that is the only way to glorification. And so we ask ourselves, are we listening? Or who are we listening to? Or has the voice of God become impossible to differentiate from other voices that we are listening to? Will we allow the God of the Bible, the Holy Spirit, to instill with intentionality within us to cut through the silence and influence our Instagram feeds, our news feeds, our echo chambers that we can lose our minds in? And if this morning you feel like a fool, verse 9, 
what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man even imagine what God has to give, to share with those that love him. Church, may Rogers Park ask of us, for who can understand them? Who can make sense of them? Church, what if we could move the needle just a little bit and show that what motivates us is not sinister, but something simply intriguing? What if we had the mind of Christ? Let's pray. God, we are overwhelmed, God, this morning that you would send your son to die on a cross to take the position of such humility and open shame for us. That you would make a way, God, that we could be cleansed of our sins, God, and that we could be cleansed and filled with your spirit, that your spirit would live and dwell within us. God, I pray, God, that we would pay attention to your spirit, that we would give time to, to being in your word, time to, to, to be in prayer, time to be centered or hearing from you in our decisions and our plans. And God, I pray, God, that we would follow in the footsteps of our Savior, that we would be a people of foolish, self-giving love for others in this neighborhood, I pray. In your name, amen.